Good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Bible Quest. I'm Jeff Smelser and we are going to be talking about Revelation chapter 1 through 3 today. Joe Works is here with me and Chase Byers. Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, Joe. Hello, Jeff. How are you today? Good. And Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Chase, did you know that you have a colony of black-crowned night herons uh, on an island right there next to downtown Harrisburg? Is that a bird? <laughs> yes, it's a bird. Yeah, is that in Three Mile Island or something like that? No, it's right uh, on an island right there in the Susquehanna River next to downtown, Three Mile Island. Oh, the city downtown. island? Yeah, right there in Harrisburg. Oh, cool. Yeah, I go over there all the time. I didn't know that. That's cool. So if you are watching this webcast and you're in the Harrisburg area near those black crown night herons, you're not far from where Chase is and the church that meets there in Harrisburg meets where? Uh, right at the East Shore YMCA, 701 North Front Street. Right across from the night herons. And right. Joe Works is working with the church in Elmira and you meet where, Joe? Uh, currently, we meet uh, in the Mark Twain building in uh, downtown Elmira, Gray Street, um, but be happy to do Bible studies with anybody in the Twin Tiers region. Uh, they have Bible studies going on in Mansfield, Pennsylvania, and surrounding area, um, Lossburg, Mansfield. Uh, so happy to go to Pennsylvania or New York, uh, upstate New York. And I'm in Exton, Pennsylvania, which is a western suburb of Philadelphia, and uh, you can visit the website of the church here at extonchurch.org. Let's talk about Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Guys, and the first thing that I want to mention, this book is called what? Revelation. As opposed to? Revelations. Yeah, just, just for what it's worth. Not the most important thing we'll say today, but let's jump right into it, verses 1 through 3. Can, can uh, I ask a question real quick? Ask what is? Away. What is the name of this book in Spanish and Portuguese? Uh, Apocalypsis in Spanish? Yeah, I think that's really cool. And what, Joe? Apocalypse. Okay. And which is very similar to the Greek word, um, and, it, and it means revelation. So, um, so that's a good question that you started off with. Um, you know, I said apocalypsis. Now, that is Greek. But in Spanish is similar to it. Now I'm wondering if I got the Spanish just right. So I'll grab my Spanish New Testament. And uh, in Spanish it is apocalypsis. Okay, so I was giving you the Greek word instead of the Spanish word. Sorry about that. All right, uh, let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And let's just start right there, guys. Who wants to introduce the letter the way John introduces it? I, I can do that. Starting in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heeds the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Okay, so what, there's some, some things that jump out at me there that are important. What jumps out at you that's important is, as I throw that question out, also to our viewers, if you want to make your comments, Chase is with us this week. He does a good job of keeping up with your comments on the Facebook page. We can try to get to them. And if you have questions about the book of Revelation, a lot of people interested in the book of Revelation, send those to us either by way of the Facebook comment section or by way of the Q&A 
icon there in your Bible Quest app at the Zoom app. So what do you notice in these three verses, guys? I think one of the first things that I usually point out to people from this text is the time element in the book. Uh, and it's listed twice here, once in verse 3, these are th- or, or verse 1. These are things that must shortly take place. And then in verse 3, um, he says that the time is near. Typically, people will take the book of Revelation, and especially if you listen to televangelists or radio evangelists, uh, any of the popular books, they usually try to make the book of Revelation something that is getting ready to happen in 2020 or something like that. Really, it's getting ready to happen in our generation or something like that. Such yeah. a Go ahead, Chase. I was going to say, and it's one of those books, people get so confused by it because it's so different from the rest of the New Testament. They get stumped by it. I was in a Bible study just the other day with a group of people. Uh, some of them were Christian, some of them weren't. And it was just interesting that between the four of us, all four of us had completely different takes on what the book of Revelation was. And it's because it's not like any of the other New Testament books. People get stumped when they come to it. And it's not like any of the other New Testament books, but it is very much like some Old Testament passages. And in fact, much of the language is language borrowed from the Old Testament. Um, And it's language that people today, without that background of the meaning of all these figures and phrases, uh, may not understand, but you'll be on the right track if you get started with what Joe mentioned, that this is about things that were shortly to come to pass, for the time is at hand, something was imminent, and the churches that were there at that time needed to be prepared for the things that were imminent nearly 2,000 years ago. And uh, so I think that's very important. Well, with that, let's jump on to the next section, verses 4 through 8. Um, and and I, I want to bring up a little, um, a little uh, map here. Uh, I think this should put it on screen. Do you guys see a map on screen now? Uh, All right. So let's zoom into this area right here where all the labels are. Of course, this is Italy over here and Greece, and this would be Jerusalem down here. But zooming in, you see the island of Patmos, and he's going to, he mentioned seven churches, and they're going to be named a little bit later on uh, in chapter two beginning. But those churches are Ephesus. And so there's a message going from John, who's in Patmos, to the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so you now, is, that, is that in order? That's in order. That's the order in which they are addressed. And so you can imagine a courier taking this revelation from John on the island of Patmos to each of these cities, to the church in each of these cities. And so again, it goes back to what we were saying a moment ago, this is a letter written to churches at that time about things that were soon to come to pass, that the time was at hand at that time. And we'll say more about that as we go on. What else do we want to notice in verses 4 through four through 8, guys? So maybe to, to note that this is a book that is meant to bring hope. I, I, I think you can see that in nearly every section of uh, the, the book. But the fact that he says, for example, in... Uh, verse the end of verse five: To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, made us kings and priests to his God. In verse six, um, those are encouraging statements for the Christians uh, in in the first century, as they would be applicable to us as well. 
noticed you're you're probably reading from the New King James there. Is that right, Joe? Yeah, yeah. And I, I do realize that that's not in every translation there. So, well, where it says made us kings and priests, uh, most of the modern translations that take into consideration uh, more of the older manuscripts say made us a kingdom and priests. And there's this idea in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel, Israel as a priesthood, even though they had a Levitical priesthood, the whole nation was considered to be a kingdom of priests. And that's the idea here. And that's kind of important. There are some people who, who view uh, the church and Jesus' kingdom as two different things. They, they think about the church as being a kind of a Gentile thing for now, and they think Jesus is going to come in the future, and he's going to set up a Jewish kingdom on earth then. And yet John here writing to these cities that are Gentile cities, there would have certainly have been Jews in many of these cities who have become Christians, but they are Gentile cities. And as John writes to them, he talks about these Christians being a kingdom. They've been made a kingdom and priests. Um, anything else we want to notice in verses 1 through 8? I think verse eight's important. Well, yeah. Over it. Yeah. So I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, what, what's the significance of the Alpha and the Omega, Jeff? Yeah. So Alpha, of course, is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So it's another way of saying the first and the last, or the beginning and the end. And we're going to see that language explicitly in a few minutes but it's language that harks back to what Yahweh or Jehovah said about himself in, for example, Isaiah 44. Uh, and I believe it's about verse six there. Uh, I can check it, but it's in a context where he is contrasting himself with the idols who are not really gods. He is saying he is the only God. He is saying he is the first and the last. He's before everything, after everything. Uh, he's independent of everything. No, no one else can say that. Uh, verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Yeah. So there's an idea here of completion, that there's nothing in between, nothing in the end, nothing in the beginning, because it's all God. This whole thing is God. And then what we're going to see interesting in just a minute is we're going to see clearly Jesus using that same language of himself, which tells us something about the deity of Jesus. Yes, it does. Let's go to verse 9. So let's look at verses 9 through 18. And we want to emphasize verse 9 to begin with. What do we see in verse 9? We're introduced to John. Well, I guess John was brought up back in verse uh, 1, but we're told where he is. We learn some more information about him, don't we? Yes, we do. What do we learn about him? We learned that he is on an island called Patmos. Do you have that up there on your uh, on your PowerPoint there, Jeff? I sure do. We'll pop it right back up here. So here is Patmos on this island. What's he doing there? Why is he on this island? My understanding is he exiled there. What does he say that leads us to believe that? He says he's a companion in tribulation. Uh, so the fact that he is he, he appears to state himself as a part of the tribulation. He's yeah, and that's really important because one of the things we want to stress, we started out saying the very first three verses said, this is a letter about things shortly to come, soon to come to pass. Time is at hand. And then now John is going to say, I'm a partaker with you in the, in the kingdom and the tribulation, or in the tribulation and the kingdom. 
uh, it's not just that they're sharing being in the kingdom. John and his readers are sharing in the tribulation. So many times people talk about the book of Revelation and they see the word tribulation and they think of some future tribulation. John is talking about a tribulation that his readers were already then experiencing and he was sharing with them in it. There's another phrase in chapter 1 verse 9 that helps us understand what he's talking about, why he is in exile on this island. What is it? Uh, the Are you talking about the perseverance which are in Jesus? Well, that would do it. But also when we read on, he was in the island that is called Patmos, and then he gives the reason because. for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, I grant, if you just take that verse by itself, there's a couple of ways you could take that. When he says, I'm, I'm on this island for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, you could argue that means he went to that island to preach. Or you could argue he was sent to that island because he had been preaching. In other words, punishment. In other words, exile. And I think we have some evidence as to which way we are to take that in the book of Revelation. <laughs> you know where I'm going? Revelation chapter 6 and verse uh, 9. Uh, John is later on going to see in a vision uh, a seal opened, and then he's going to see underneath the altar the souls of them that had been slain, people who've been killed. Why were they killed? For the word of God and for the testimony which they held. That doesn't mean they were killed so that they could preach the word of God. That means they were killed because they held to the word of God, they held to that testimony, and then you look at the similarity between that language and the language that John uses in verse 9 when he says, I was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It becomes pretty clear. He's saying he's on that island being punished because he was preaching the word of God because he was holding to the testimony of Jesus. Doesn't that make sense? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So what, what you're telling me, Jeff, is in order to understand a book, we need to read the beginning of it. You know what? I think that makes a lot of sense. Because <laughs> sometimes, uh, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but there are some, some of us who just want to go to the back of the book or go to the middle of the book to figure out the information. But sometimes in order to understand the whole book, you got to read the beginning. That explains the setting, the context, and everything else that really sets up the scene for the book. <laughs> What we have so far in the beginning is John is writing to some people about things that are soon to come to pass. He is a participant in a tribulation that they are also sharing in, and he is going to talk to them about that. Well, we have some more things in verses 10 through 18 that we need to give some attention. Can, can I just mention one other thing that I should have mentioned earlier, just really quick. In, yep. verse, in verse 3, he says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Yeah. And, recognize that this book is intended to, to be a blessing to those who read. It's not supposed to be something that causes fear or uh, trepidation. Um, I'm afraid too many people hear the book of Revelation, uh, hear about it or whatever, and don't want to study it because they think that it's some uh, horrible story that's uh, you know going to come upon mankind. The, the book is intended to give hope and comfort. Very much Amen. so. Very much so. Um, in verse 3, where you have that phrase, since you call our attention to it, it's just a little detail. Uh, but they, uh, he, singular, that reads, and they that hear. Uh, this would have been the typical way that Christians would have been exposed to this. This letter would come to Ephesus, 
and one man would stand up and read it, and the congregation would hear, and then it would go to Smyrna, and one man would stand up and read, and the congregation would hear, and what the congregation was to get was a blessing, encouragement, because they're going through tribulation, and here's a message of hope in spite of the tribulation that they're enduring. Which, which may be good for us to think more about in light of First Timothy 4.13, uh, until I come give attention to reading, um, uh, a lot of our worship service or time together is maybe devoted to uh, trying to explain the scriptures. We, we need to seriously give attention to reading the scriptures and read them well. I think that's right. What else do we have in verses 10 through 18, guys? John, who is in the spirit on the Lord's day. Yeah, it says the Lord's God. day. And the, yeah, what say what, Chase? It said it says the Lord's day. I, yeah. I wonder what day that is. Uh, so what day would that be? I, I'd imagine that would be Sunday, is my, often, is my thought often. And, and why would we think that? That is the day Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Uh, we see the, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the apostles coming together to preach the gospel message. Uh, on the first day of the week in Acts 20 and verse 7, we see them gathering to break bread. It seems to be a common day that God's people come together to worship him. Yeah, this is actually a different expression than the one often translated day of the Lord, which refers to a day of judgment uh, when God visits a city or a nation or even the end of the world with judgment. This is an expression that is different from that one, and I think you're right. It's referring to the Lord's victory day over death. Christians uh, kept this first day of the week, the Lord's day in the first century. And so John is in the spirit on this day, and he hears a trumpet, and then what? Uh, he hears a voice also with some uh, words about what is uh, instructions that he's supposed to, to do. And he's supposed to write what he sees in a book and send it to these seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Can we do this one more time, guys? It's just fun. Sit here and look at the map. So he's supposed to send it, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, to, let me back up here, and, uh, well, undo, 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 undo. I can't, have, why is that not doing that? Oh, I know why I didn't click on the map. Okay, so we got to go back here. All right, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea in that order. And so, so he, go ahead. I was going to say for those who are listening via audio and cannot see the actual footage of this, we are going in a clockwise fashion. Ephesus and then Smyrna, which is north of there, up to Pergamum, and then down south to Thyatira, Sardis. So it is in a line is what we're trying to yeah, all these churches in this province known as Asia, not Asia that includes China and Russia and all of that, not even what is historically referred to as Asia Minor, which is the whole peninsula, but this province, which is just the western end of this peninsula, and there are these seven churches here that are mentioned. All right, then what else do we have? He sees something, doesn't he? Yeah, so maybe to tie that together with what he sees in or that he's told to write, in verse 19, he's told to write three different things, the things that he has seen, the things that are, and the things which are, uh, which will take place after this. That seems like a pretty handy outline to me of the book. Um, a little bit ahead because we haven't talked about the things that he's seen, um, but the things that he's, that he's just seeing right then, uh, this, this image of Christ, uh, and then the things which are, I would take that from chapters 2 through chapter 5, 
the things that are currently, the, what the situation currently looks like on earth and in heaven. And then from verse uh, chapter six on the things which will take place after that. Not everybody breaks it down that way and that's fine. Um, it's almost like, uh, you know, Acts 1, 8, where you have that outline of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You can outline the book of Acts from that. And you can sort of do the same thing here. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's about right. I, we, I might put that, that break a little bit differently, but basically what you have is in these, letter, in these chapters where they're the letters to the churches, it's, we see a picture of the present state at the time that John writes. And then after that, the rest of the book is about, all right, here's, here's how you're going to get through this. Here's what's going to happen. Here's the judgment God is going to bring upon those who are persecuting you. Uh, I would call attention to chapter 4, verse 1, and the phrase at the end of the verse, come up hither and I will show you the things which must come to pass hereafter. And I would kind of connect, connect that with 3.19, the things which shall come to pass hereafter, kind of the beginning point of that. Um, let's, let's not, before we move on out of this section, let's make sure we get an understanding of what John sees at this moment. He heard a voice, he heard a trumpet, he turns, and what does he see? The first thing he sees are seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands? One like the Son of Man. Where's that expression, Son of Man, come from? Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 7, yeah. 7, yeah. So there was this vision that Daniel saw where the Ancient of Days sits for judgment and one like a son of man comes up before him and he is given the kingdom, he is given dominion. And so it's, it's the figure of the, Messian, the Messiah who's going to receive and rule over the kingdom. And that's what John sees here. And then we have a description of him. And I, I guess for sake of time, let's jump right down to verse 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not. Now, this is the one that John sees speaking. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So then who is this? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, who was dead and was raised from the dead and is alive. And so then when we have Jesus saying, I am uh, the first and the last, using the language that Yahweh used back there in Isaiah 44, that tells us something about Jesus. It certainly does. And uh, that, that passage in Isaiah 44, I think, is really significant. Um, it helps connecting those two passages I think helps us to understand the the, the quality or the character of, uh, of Jesus um, uh, in Isaiah 44 6 he says uh, thus says the Lord Yahweh uh, the king of Israel and his redeemer the Lord of hosts I am the first and I am the last besides me there is no God um, and so whoever the first and last is he says there's no other God but me right right and Jesus then making that statement clearly, Jesus is Jehovah then, or else he's quite blasphemous to, to make this statement, which then becomes absurd because he's making the statement from heaven. Right. Okay. So when we read Yahweh or Jehovah in the Old Testament, or as many of our English 
translations do it. They put the word Lord in all capital letters. That includes the one revealed to us as Jesus, uh, the Son of Man. All right, so he's standing there, and he has in his right hand the seven, uh, the seven stars, and he says in verse 20, those seven stars are the seven churches. So John is writing the seven churches, and they are going through some tribulation, and he's going to talk about that in each of the respective messages to the seven churches. And uh, he says, I saw the Lord, and he was holding you in his hand, so to speak, the seven stars, and those are the seven churches in Jesus' hand. And so that, I think we're ready for chapter two. Is there anything else we need to touch on in chapter one before we jump on into chapter two? Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but uh, in verse 20, it's really handy through the book of Revelation. Years ago when I felt overwhelmed by studying this, somebody pointed this out to me. So many times when we think something is confusing, the answer is it's literally given for us. It's an open book test. Yeah. It's like, well, what do the golden lampstands mean? What do the seven stars mean? And, and, you know, and, and if you just read it slowly, so often you're told exactly what things represent. That's not too hard to see right here, but it, it, it even continues to do that for us. Sure, that's a good point. So he gives you the symbol and then he tells you what it means. The seven stars, well, those are the seven churches. And, and, and then we should, we should be quite content to stop right where the text stops with that. We're not looking for the churches to then represent something else. That's not what the text tells us. No. Okay, good. All right, so, so then we get to chapter 2, and there's a message to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and this angel is representative of the church. And down in chapter 2, verse 8, there's a message to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 12, there's a message that begins to the angel of the church in Pergamum. And so let's talk, and it goes on, to all seven of these churches. So let's talk, first of all, about chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. What's the message to the angel of the church in Ephesus? Well, wow, Crickets. <laughs> they've got a lot of things going for them uh you know quite positive they they are very firm in their stand for the truth um they won't allow false doctrine they seem quite busy uh with the, the things that they're doing they're laboring it talks about in verse three um so you, you would look at this church i think from the outside and say man that's the kind of group that you know i want an active church that's standing for the truth but they, so they've got some good things going, and they've got some bad things going. Yeah, what's the word of warning to them? They have left their first love. Mm -hmm. Verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. What are your all's thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. Is Joe, you were mentioning the good things they had going for them. One of the things they had going for them was that they did not bear evil men, that they tried those who called themselves apostles but were not, and the church there at Ephesus could find them false. Uh, you get the impression that this is a congregation that would say the right things about about doctrine and say the right things about who are God's people and so on, and yet they had left their first love. Um, it's easy for somebody to become a little self-satisfied. It's, it's easy for somebody to lose the zeal. You think back to Acts 19 and the church at Ephesus, as we see it in Acts 19, and you see people becoming convicted 
that uh, the, the magic books that they had that were worth quite a lot of money, that was something that they had to give up. And they didn't take them down to the used bookstore and get what money they could for them. They burned them. I think it says in Acts 19, they were worth some, what, 50,000 pieces of silver? Is that right? right? Is that right. right? Yeah. And they burned them. They were willing to give that, that up because of their love for the Lord. But it's easy as time goes by to start making compromises. Maybe that's what's going on here in the church at Ephesus. You know, I've heard it put as well. The church in Ephesus is one of the oldest recorded churches that we have in the New Testament. Uh, and quite likely, depending on what date you take for this book, um, and either one, you should be safe to say that some of the Christians that, that grew up with their parents were Christians here. They're, they're grown up at this point. Um, and quite possibly, they're, they're now raising kids or getting married and that kind of thing. And this could be a call back to, hey, look at what your parents were doing. Look at the zeal that they had. And yeah. uh, you all have abandoned that. Yeah, second, sometimes it's true. A second generation comes along that doesn't quite have the fervor, the zeal that the first generation did. You can't inherit uh, Christianity. You've got to make it your own. Absolutely. And if they failed to, uh, to, to repent, then the Lord's going to remove this lampstand. It shows us the, the idea of once saved, always saved. Um, whatever, removing the lampstand, that church was the lampstand that being removed, taken out of God's presence. Uh, that doesn't sound so good, does it, Joe? <laughs> very, very terrifying scene. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to call attention to, we're going to see in each of these messages to the seven churches, uh, he's going to address himself to the angel of the church, and maybe we'll have time to talk about what that means. Uh, but then he's going to, the Lord is going to identify himself. It's the Lord who's speaking here, and, and he's going to identify himself in the message to the angel of the church at Ephesus, he says, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, he that walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's the way the Lord identifies himself here. He'll identify himself in other terms in his messages to the other churches. It's interesting that here he identifies himself as the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, or lampstands, as some translations say, and then in verse 5, he comes back to that idea. He says, if you don't repent, I will move your candlestick or lampstand out of its place. Watch for that pattern to be repeated. All right. Then we come to chapter 2, verse 8. We have the message to the angel of the church at Smyrna. Uh, what is it that's interesting about uh, this particular message? What jumps out at you? Uh the contrast to what we read about in the Ephesus letter, nothing said about them in the negative. No, nothing, nothing negative about their conduct. Certainly they're going through some negative things, but they're not. They, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy, this is in verse 9, and the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Fear not the things which you are about to suffer. Here's what I want to stress. You know, we started out saying this is a message to churches uh, who are going through persecution, and John is sharing in that persecution. He's writing to them about things that are soon to come to pass. He's talking about something in immediate in terms of the tribulation they're experiencing. And right here, he tells the church, the Lord tells the church at, at Smyrna, 
I know your tribulation. And he says, fear not the things in verse 10 you're about to suffer. Uh, there's more suffering to come. This is not about some persecution in the 21st century. This is something that was going on then. Great point. Good point. Again, notice how the Lord identifies himself. In this instance, how does he identify himself in verse 8? The first and the last who is dead and has come to life. In other words, he's the one who has power over death. And then what does he say to them? Down in verse 10, at the end of the verse, he says, Be thou faithful. He says to the folks at Smyrna, you keep on keeping on, even though you're going through persecution, tribulation, be faithful, even to the point that you are killed for your faith. Who's saying that to them? The one who was dead and who is alive, the one who has power over death. That just reminds me of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, reassuring the Corinthians in the resurrection of Jesus to reassure them about their own resurrection. Uh, if, if Jesus is going to resurrect, you are too. And yeah. it, I think it's similar here. If he can overcome death and he's your savior, you can too. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, the message to the angel of the church at Pergamum. What do you notice in this passage? Well, Jesus says he has a sharp two-edged sword as a tongue. Well, no, not, not as a tongue, sorry. Just the one who has a sharp two-edged sword, sorry. And he's going to come back to that in verse 16 when he says, Repent, therefore, or else I come to thee quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I was jumping so, ahead of myself. You see that pattern there where how he identifies himself has something to do with what he's going to say to them. But we also see evidence in this message of persecution at that time, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of their members, Antipas, had been murdered uh, because of the, uh, his faithfulness. That's in verse 13. So again, just to emphasize the fact, this book was not written with a view to being interpreted in terms of headlines in the newspaper. Who reads a newspaper anymore? Headlines on the internet in the 21st century. This book was written to people who were going through persecution at that time, and it was a message of hope for them because of the victory God was going to give them. There are powerful lessons in it for us and for Christians of all ages. And the basic message of, of to him that overcomes, I will give the reward, that's a message for all of us. But we make a mistake if we think this book of Revelation is a roadmap to interpreting current political events. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And, and maybe just a, a, another point to, to make from that, uh, recognizing that Christianity is not a bed of roses. Um, what we see in the book of Acts, what we see happening to these churches here, uh, Christians face difficulties. Um, there's a pretty popular movement now for the last few decades, especially of trying to paint, you know, if you're a faithful Christian, you know, health and wealth, that's what you're going to gain. And Jesus promises never promises that. Yeah, these folks missed out on that message. Boy, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. All right. There's, we're going to go on to chapter 2, verses 18 through 28, and the message to the angel of the church at Thyatira. If you have some comments or questions you'd like for us to address, we're kind of hitting this at a high level. We're not getting all the details. But we're trying to hit the things that will help you see what's going on in this letter. Um, and so let's take a look here at chapter 2, verses 18 through 28 message to the angel of the church of Thyatira. So Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Again, going back to the image of chapter one. And how, how do you see that playing out in this, in this letter? 
Well, as you get down to chapter 2 and verse uh, 23, he says, um, I am he that searches the reins and the hearts. This is an old-fashioned translation. Reins is a word for kidneys. Reins was the seat of emotion and heart the seat of the intellect. I'm the one who searches your thoughts and your feelings, your emotions. Well, how did he introduce himself? He says, eyes like a flame of fire. I don't know why. I always think of Superman's laser vision or something. You know. <laughs> yeah. But this is somebody greater than Superman. This is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, and he can see right into our, our very thoughts, our very emotions, and he can make a righteous judgment. And in the church at Thyatira, there's some things that, that needed assessing and were not really all that good. What's going on in the church at Thyatira that he is concerned about? They had a woman in their midst um, uh, who named it Jezebel in verse 20. And they were tolerating her teaching of immorality and idolatry. Yeah, eating things sacrificed to idols and committing fornication. Basically, she is telling them, you can go along with the, the larger culture. You can participate in the larger culture and compromise your faith. You can have one foot in, in both camps. It's interesting, the Jezebel, the name Jezebel is, a, is no doubt not her real name, but the name given to this woman in the church of Thyatira, harking back to the Jezebel of the Old Testament, who was the wife of King Ahab, who was opposing God's prophets, who was encouraging idolatry, at a time that Elijah, the prophet of God, was rebuking the people for having a foot in both camps. Different translations handle it differently, but Elijah says, how long go ye limping between the two, or how long will you straddle, and does some translations say straddle the fence? That's kind of the idea. This Jezebel is, in, in other words, Israelites, trying to be God's people and worship idols. And that's what this Jezebel is encouraging. Well, in a time of persecution of God's people, uh, if you're standing strong against the larger culture, if you're standing strong against idolatry and immorality, you're more likely to be oppressed. You're more likely to suffer uh, persecution. And this woman was saying, all right, go ahead, compromise. And the Lord is saying, you can't do that. In fact, some, some, great irony in the writing here, uh, Lex Talionis kind of moment. Um, she's encouraging them to get into this uh, immorality, and the Lord says, I'm going to cast her upon her deathbed. Meaning punishment fits the crime, right, Joe? Yeah, exactly. So I got a question. I, I mentioned Superman, and you mentioned Lex. I thought his name was Lex Luthor. You said Lex who? Lex Talionis. He was the, uh, the, the uh, Latin uh, equivalent. All right, so Chase, were you saying something that was related to Lex Luthor or Lex Talionis? Uh, one was, mine was Lex Talionis, but maybe you can tell us more about Lex Luthor in a second. But I was talking about Lex Talionis, meaning punishment fits the crime. Okay, so the Latin expression, Lex Talionis, punishment fits the crime. And so that's what you were alluding to, Joe. When you yes. get all highbrow, honest, Joe, it just, you know, <laughs> you have to slow down and explain that. Uh, you know, Joe, he's the first one to do that. Yeah, yeah. always. All right. All right. So let's go on now to uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. And we have a message to the angel of the church in Sardis. What jumps out at you here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6? Zombies. Well, yeah, there's, they're alive, but they're dead. Okay, you went from highbrow to zombies. <laughs> 
<laughs> spiritual zombies. Chase, yeah, tell that, me what he's talking about. You were explaining what he's talking about. Yeah, so he says, I know your deeds. You have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. And he tells oh. him to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. So a zombie is somebody who might be physically alive, but they're dead on the inside. Yeah, okay. Uh, this is interesting because we come down to verse 4, and after referring to the church as a whole at Sardis as dead, he says, but you have a few names in Sardis that did not defile their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What's the idea there? I think there's an important idea here. We're not going to stand before God collectively as a congregation. I'm not going to be able to put my confidence or my trust in this congregation. Well, the congregation is right with God, so I am. And, and the flip side of that is God may have some serious concerns about the congregation as a whole. That doesn't mean everybody in it is standing condemned by God. Um, is that kind of one of the thoughts you wanted to see there? Yeah, I think that's good. Uh, we may have time to come back to how the Lord identifies himself here. Uh, I'll do it real quickly. In chapter 3, verse 1, he identifies himself here as he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And if we think back to the fact that the stars are the angels of the churches, and then we look at what he says to this church, in verse 5, he says, He that overcomes shall thus be arrayed in white garments, and I will in no wise blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So he identified himself as the one who has the seven stars, which are angels, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. And then he says, I will confess uh, his name, the one who's faithful, before the angels. And we think of uh, Luke chapter 12, and I think it's verse 8, is it, where it talks about the names of those who are faithful being confessed before the angels. We understand what kind of angels those are, and for that reason, I believe when it talks about the angel of its church, it's talking about a supernatural being, a spiritual being who is associated with that church. You think of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, angels are described as ministering spirits sent forth to do service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation. And you can think of the Old Testament book of Daniel, angels associated with given kingdoms. It would seem here that there are angels associated with churches and that have some responsibility for those churches. And the Lord can address the church through the angel, so to speak. Any other thoughts you want to, or maybe you want to argue a little bit with my view there, but uh, any other thoughts you want to bring out in chapters, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6? I, I wanted to argue with you on that, but uh, I heard you present some of that material a couple of years ago, and you convinced me of that, so um, uh, thanks for your help there. All right. Uh, you know, as we get into these last two messages, let me pull something up on screen here um, that I think might be helpful. And it is somewhere, um, oh, I know where it is. It is, I thought I knew where it was. Well, I, I'll have to find it in a minute. I don't see it right now. Well, let me go to this. It might be here. Let's see. No, it's not there. All right. Well, maybe I can bring it up in a minute. Let's go on to chapter 3, verse 7 uh, through 13. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia, what do we see there? You don't mean Pennsylvania, do you? I don't mean Pennsylvania, and I also don't mean New York. There's a Philadelphia, New York. 
Um, there is a Philadelphia, though, that was a city in Asia, this Roman province, in the first century. <coughs> And so this church, uh, much like the uh, previous church in Smyrna, nothing said about them, uh, may not look at them and think, be very impressed with them, uh, but the Lord certainly was. Yes, and and, uh, so he identifies himself here as the one that opens and none shall shut, and that shuts and none opens, that's at the end of verse 7. And then he says to them, and I'm trying to spot it, it's in verse 8, I know thy works, behold, I've set before thee a door which a door opened which none can shut. And so that's kind of the connection there between how he identifies himself and what he says to them. Well, real quickly, let's move right on to chapter 3 and verses 14 through 22 and the message to the church at Laodicea. So he introduces himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Quite a powerful uh, couple of words there, or several descriptions to describe Jesus. He has some warnings to the church at Laodicea, doesn't he? He does. Uh, this is where we get the concept of cold or hot and lukewarm. Uh, Jesus says, if you're lukewarm and you're not hot or cold, I'm going to spew you right out of my mouth, he says in verse 16. Yeah, so we can't get lackadaisical in our faith. Real quickly, we're running out of time. Let me just notice here, in in these messages, there's a structure. There's an addressee to the angel of the church at. The Lord identifies himself in some manner. And then he says, I know your works. And then there's a rebuke and a warning, except in the case of Smyrna and Philadelphia. And then there's an encouraging admonition to the one who overcomes, I will give him, say, the crown of life, for example. And then there's this, he that hath an ear, uh, let him hear. And then to he, he that overcomes. I, I, I kind of confused chapter, uh, section 5 and section 7. But you have those uh, seven sections. And, and what you see is a picture of churches that are going through a time of persecution. Some are doing very well. Some are compromising. There's a warning to those who are compromising. The rest of the book of Revelation is going to be about this overcoming, being faithful to the Lord, and ultimately his people will get the victory. And so that should should set the stage for a study of the book of Revelation, and maybe you'll see that it's not what is popularly thought. We're going to have to wrap it up there, guys. Thank you for uh, helping out today, and thank you for our viewers for watching. Any closing comment? Uh, Amen. You know, I thought I was sharing a screen right there when I was going through those seven sections, and I wasn't. You, you were. No, you were. You were. Oh, You're good. Okay. All right. All right. Very good. I, I will sign off then, and uh, Lord willing, we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks, guys.